Let's pray. Father, we come as crouching beggars in what we bring to this. But we come as beloved children in what you have for us in this. We do ask that by the power of your omnipotent Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, teach us, instruct us, convict us, build us up. And where there is need, God, save us as we look at your word. We ask for these things and we expect them because of the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, yeah. What do you do with this? Tempted to just pronounce a benediction and go ahead and eat. Because <laughs> after reading that, I mean, it's incredible. But let's see what we can do. 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So as is our custom, as interpretation demands, we have to look back to see what this for is there for. And we had left off last week after seeing another description of the once-for-allness of the work of Jesus to put away sin, the author said, by the sacrifice of himself. And like I've said in the past, and we'll continue to say as we move forward, this is the mega theme of this whole letter, by which the writer is working to show the betterness of Jesus, the betterness of his high priestliness, and the betterness of the new covenant that he brought about. And ready or not, we're going to turn this diamond today and look at another facet of it to see this glorious truth in still another light. So, in that line of thought, we see four. Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of his people, and he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's where we finished last week. Four, since the law. So what we're going to see is the inability of the old covenant as shown in and through the law, the inability of that old covenant, the inability of that law to bring about forgiveness of sins. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So then, from what he's saying directly, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And that's a great description of what was going on in God's economy, in God's plan, through what we see in the Old Testament. The law, which is used to refer to all of what we see laid out as commands and ordinances in the first five books of the Bible, had but a shadow and did not show the true form of the good things that were going to come after it. I said it a few weeks ago, a shadow is what is seen when a tangible thing blocks the light behind it. Now think about that as far as the law goes. Okay? 
There's something tangible blocking the light and what's cast behind that tangible thing is the shadow. And the law was a shadow. Okay? Jesus was coming up the road somewhere. He's in the future, looming large. And until the reality of Jesus came to be in time, in flesh, all we could see was the light blocked and the shadow that He cast, which is the law. So the law is but the shadow of those good things that are to be embodied in Christ at a future time. And Jesus is the true form of the good things to come, with the law being the shadow. Jesus was coming in the future, and and until that reality came to be, all we could see is just shadows, or all they could see is just shadows. And while the law was all there was at that time, the sacrifices offered continually every year, It could not make perfect those who were obedient to that law, who were seeking to draw near to God by obeying the law that God had given. So, since that law was just the shadow of the coming of the reality, those under the law, listen, could not be made perfect by the sacrifices made in that time, even in their best efforts to keep the law. The contrast here is a shadow versus the true form. Shadows can't save or perfect anyone. And God designed it that way. God did not fail under the old covenant. It was designed to be a shadow of the things to come. Verse 2. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So the sacrifices they here, otherwise would they, the sacrifices under the law couldn't perfect those making them under the law. Otherwise, the writer says, would they, the offerings, not have ceased to be offered? Now why would he say that? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So that's saying if the sacrifices made under the law did or could make the offerers perfect, then there wouldn't be any need for them to be offered more than once. One offering would have done the perfecting. So that first day of atonement would have done the trick. And they would have never had to do it again. And there wouldn't be these perpetual offerings day by day, year by year. The worshiper would have been cleansed with one offering. And having been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. And that should make us go, oh my, how wonderful would it be if we could possibly be cleansed with no consciousness of sins. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Yes, it is. But it was not to be under the law. Oh, the betterness of the new covenant. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And you can say every day. What a sentence this is. It makes you go, ugh. So no, the sacrifices under the law couldn't perfect the worshipers. But the writer says, in these sacrifices, 
In offering these bulls, these sheep, these goats, there is what? Hope? Nope. Nope, not hope. Instead, as they offered their offerings for their sins, all they got from it was a reminder of their sins. Year after year, day after day, sheep after sheep, goat after goat, bull after bull, bird after bird, all they got was, yeah, I see my sins. Even the most holy sacrifice, the year-by-year high priest venture into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, could only serve to remind God's people of their sins. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. Now let me ask you this question. What would you rather have? A reminder of your sins or the removal of your sins? That's not a hard question. Verse 4. 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Shadows can't save or perfect anyone. 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, shadows of the good things to come, to take away sins. It's impossible. Period. The blood of bulls and goats was only a shadow of the good things that would come later. The blood of bulls and goats could only point to a need for something better. The blood of bulls and goats could only remind us of our sinfulness. So then what? Aha! Verses 5 to 7. Consequently, it's my favorite word in this whole passage. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All right, now looky, looky, looky here. Consequently, could be translated as therefore, so then. So it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then, therefore, consequently, when Christ came into the world. So when Jesus shows up on the scene of history, and we see what's been casting these shadows, and we see the Messiah, the promised deliverer of His people, He said something. And what's quoted here is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Let me just read that. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. You say, well, that's not what he said in Hebrews, but it is. Again, there are differences of translation. The meaning is what is said in the understanding that we see through the, the, writer of the, the writer of Hebrews is translating for us what was meant when this was said in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, be careful because we don't have any record of Jesus actually saying this in the Gospels. It's not recorded that Jesus quoted this psalm. No direct quote. But... The Old Testament's the Word of God too, right? And the Word of God is divinely inspired. It's God-breathed. 
And so Jesus, who is God in the flesh, did say this when it was written in the psalm because He inspired it. And it did point to His coming. And look what it said here. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body. A body. A body. A tangible thing. Right? You have prepared for me. The son says to the father, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I love what Donald Guthrie astutely points out here. Quote, In the Old Testament quotation, which is Psalm 46 through 8, four words are used for the Levitical offerings. Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. And he says the first pair are general the second pair are representative, and together they fairly sum up the whole Levitical system. End of quote. So then, take that into consideration of what's being said here. So instead of all the laws and all the offerings and all the commands and all the sacrifices which God is said to have taken no pleasure in, in this passage, the Christ, Jesus, was given a body. And in that body... He did the will of God. I have come to do your will, O God. He came to be in a body to do the will of God. He embodied God's will. He embodied God's plan. And He did that will and that plan perfectly as opposed to sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings which could never perfect the consciences of those who were offering them. Those things could not be or do the will of God. Offerings, blood, animals. They pointed though to the one, capital O, one, who would be and do the will of God. And that was Jesus, the Christ. And the quote ends with that clause, as it is written me in the scroll of the book. All that was written in the Old Testament was written to describe who Jesus would be and what He would do. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to give us more insight into this quote in verses 8 and 9. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Now watch this. Here's the, the author of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit interpreting that passage for us, telling us what it means. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So we see all of this that the psalmist foretells and that is attributed to Jesus is for a specific reason. And listen, this can't be overstated. It's to do away with the first, the first covenant, the law, the old covenant. To do away with it in order to establish the second the work of Jesus, our redemption, the new covenant. With Jesus coming in the flesh, in a human body, the true form of the good things to come had arrived. No more shadows. Out with shadows, in with the tangible, real form of God in the flesh, come to be and do the will of God. The first covenant was done away with. And the second was established. 
And it had to come in that order. The first was done away with in order to establish, to set in place the second. The new covenant could not come to be, it could not be established if the old covenant had not been done away with. Now stop and think about that for a second. If the old covenant was still in effect, if those demands and commands and shadows were still a thing, the real tangible couldn't take shape, it couldn't take place. So when the tangible showed up, he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Which means I'll take care of it. I'll do away with it. And then I'll be the center of attention. That's the point of doing away with the old covenant. The old covenant had to be done away with for the new covenant to come. And the old covenant could not continue if the new was established. And it was. Therefore, the first is done away with in order to establish the second. And keep in mind, we're going, yeah, yeah, I get that, I think. But keep in mind who the writer is writing to here. A bunch of Hebrews who were struggling with how this new Christian faith, based on the finished work of Jesus, fit into their Jewish life and worship. Wrestling with whether they should be offering lambs and rams or if the blood of Jesus made that obsolete. And and what the author says here to them directly is that yes, absolutely the blood of Jesus made the the blood of rams and bulls and goats obsolete. The tangible is here. The shadows are gone. We're looking at the man, Christ Jesus, not the things foretold that He would do or be. The new covenant absolutely made the old covenant obsolete. Absolutely it did. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And again, we kind of yawn at that and say, okay, yeah, that's fine. But these first century Hebrews, these first century Jews are going, ooh-wee, major paradigm shift. Major paradigm shift. Major. Stop looking at the shadows and look at the one who has caused those shadows to be here. Do away with the first in order that the second may be established. So this was, I'm telling you, this was earth shattering to them. And it is to us too. We just don't recognize it as much as they did, probably. Jesus doesn't fit in with their Jewish life. Jesus doesn't fit in with their offerings and their sacrifices. He fulfilled them. They foretold Him and He fulfilled them. So don't keep doing what you have been doing because that's not what your faith is in. Your faith is in a person, a body. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So that's pretty well established. The blood of Jesus paid for our sins once and for all. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. Not bad or wrong. Obsolete. So is that it? No. I almost stopped at verse 10, but I couldn't. But we'll look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. Keep a sharp focus on that word through the rest of our passage. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And anytime you see that phrase, and again, perk up your ears. I don't, I don't know. Raise your antennae. Oh my goodness, y'all. This verse. Did he just say what I think he said? 
And you're like, I don't know what you think he said. But let's look into it. So the first covenant is done away with by the establishment of the second covenant. And remember we said the word for testament, covenant, and will are the same a few weeks ago. And, so, and by that will is referring to the second covenant that had been established. And by that second covenant, what? By that second will, what? We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now I'm going to take out the clause through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ and come back to it. Because that's a descriptor of something. We'll come back to that. But but what I want to see, what I want us to see is what's being said here. We have been sanctified once for all. And by that will, we have been sanctified once for all. Now what does sanctified mean? Well, okay. I will give you the Greek word. Hagiadzo. That's fun, right? Hagiadzo. Yeah, now you know. Here's what it means, okay? To render or acknowledge. To separate from profane things and dedicate to God. To consecrate things to God. To dedicate people to God. To purify. To cleanse externally. To purify by expiation. For all you Romans folks that were here through Asian Station, you remember expiation, right? The rest of you are going, nope. Now, here's another part of the definition. Free from the guilt of sin. And finally, to purify internally by renewing of the soul. That's quite a definition, y'all. Hagiadzo. Bless you. Indeed, bless me. So let me, let me take that definition and plug it in. At the establishment... Of the second new covenant, this, this will, the second will, by the establishment of that new covenant, God's people have been dedicated to God. God's people have been purified. God's people have been cleansed and freed from the guilt of sin once for all. And that verb is perfect tense, passive voice. What's that mean? Perfect tense means it's something that happened in the past with ongoing effects for the rest of the future. That's what perfect means. So it happened to someone in the past and it continues to have effect. And the fact that it's passive means it happened to someone. They didn't do it themselves. These people didn't set themselves apart for God. God set them apart for Himself. Once for all. Perfect passive. Boy, that's a good description of the Christian life, by the way. Mm, we, could, we could stay there a few weeks. But we won't. And while that might not be new news to you after what we've already seen in Hebrews, don't miss the magic of it just because it's familiar. We have been made holy. If you are in Christ, you have been made holy by God once for all. Bing, bong, bing, bong, bing, bong, bing, bong, bing, bong. 
the commentator Sigurd Grindheim, who I've quoted several times through this study, says it this way, quote, In other words, to be made holy means not only to have been made acceptable in God's presence, but much more than that. Those who have been made holy have been united with the Son of God. They have become His intimates, His brothers and sisters, a people that live with Him, act like Him, suffer with Him, and ultimately inherit with Him. That's what it means to be sanctified. And the second covenant, the new covenant, that will has established, has been established, and therefore this is true of us. Oh, what Christ has done for us. And it was Christ Himself that brought this about. The writer says it was through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ that accomplished this for us. And note here, it's body, not blood. Right? We've talked about the blood a lot. He offered His blood in the holy places, not made with human hands. But here what He's doing is He's simply keeping this mindset intact of referring back to the body mentioned in the quote from Psalm. Not offerings and sacrifices, not shadows, but Christ offering His body to be and do the will of God like we said earlier. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And by the offering of His body... In obedience to the Father, right hook here, Christ has made us holy once for all. Verse 11 and 12 and 13. (laughs) And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemy should be made a footstool for His feet. Now there's nothing really new here for us. If you've been around for this Hebrews stuff, we've seen it unpacked a few times in our study of Hebrews. But repetition ain't a bad thing, y'all. This is contrasting the daily repeated sacrifices under the Old Covenant versus that perfect single sacrifice for all time that Christ made. And when He made that single sacrifice that perfects us for all time, what did He do? He sat down. Meaning His work of redemption was completed. And that's significant. Jesus is not standing in heaven going, Oh no! Oh no, I hope this works out. God, what do I need to do? Father, what do I need to do to make sure Jason don't mess this up? Well, let me tell you what. If Jason could mess it up, Jason would mess it up. But I can't. He sat down. I don't think he put his hands behind his head. But that's the picture you get because the work is completed. Imagine the high priest in the Old Covenant walking into the Holy of Holies and sitting down. Sup, God? He's dead. I mean, literally, he's dead. Why? Because his work is never done. 
because he had to constantly remind the people of their sins. As he went in there year by year, it with fear and trembling and tinkling bells on him in case he did get struck down. Rope tied around his ankle so they could drag him out of there if he thought about sitting down. But Jesus did what he did, went into the presence of God, and he sat down. It's finished. It is done. It is finished. Sit down. No more work to do as far as that goes. It's completed. Waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110 verse 1 which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a messianic prophecy. And what it's pointing toward is this coming deliverer in psalmist days who would come and deliver his people leading to total domination, complete conquering, final manifested victory for God and his people. Just sit down until I put the stool under your feet that is your enemies. Prop your feet up because they're all defeated. And that must have been a sweet, sweet promise for these sometimes fearful, sometimes doubting believers who were starting to see the beginnings of persecution and feel the desperation of an already but not yet experience in their faith walk. Which is a pretty good lead-in to verse 14. Which may be the most magical truth amongst all this magical truth. And it is magical. Oh my. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay. This should really make you crinkle, crinkle, crinkle. Where's Lily? Crinkle, crinkle, crinkle up your forehead. Should make you go, wait a second. This should make you ask some really good questions. You're like, uh, what's for lunch? That's not a really good question. Relax about that. (laughs) So we see again that Christ and or God, and the writer seems to use them interchangeably very often because Christ is God. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, We see that Christ and or God has, by a single offering, perfected for all time a group of people. Again, that, while glorious and worthy of consistent meditation, is not a new concept to us if we've paid attention at all in our nine and a half chapters of Hebrews thus far. Okay, It's been established. And again, it is wonderful news that should never just be yeah, yeah, and not rejoiced over. One offering. The author keeps sounding this note about Jesus' offering as opposed to the countless sheep and goats and rams and birds offered in the Levitical system. One, a single offering. The perfect offering of the life and death of Christ and His resurrection and His glorification and His intercession for us. And that offering perfected, and again, don't miss that word, perfected, God's people for all time. And I'll say it again, it can't be overstated. That is absolutely, positively mind-blowing. 
And it's true. We, we can't say it too loud or too much. And who is it that is perfected by this offering of Christ's body? We saw back in 9.15, there's a group of people called the called. Therefore, He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is who is perfected by this perfect offering of Christ's body, the called. The called are who the single sacrifice was offered for. And they have been perfected for all time. And back to 10.14 where we were here in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 10, it is the called, those perfected for all time, who are also described as those who are what? Being sanctified. Which should make you go, wait, what? Right? Does that make you go, wait, what? Are being sanctified. But 10.10 said, we have been sanctified. Right? Once for all. That says the new covenant made it so that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been once for all. Now the author is saying that we are being sanctified. Which is right. Have we been or are we being? And of course, the answer is a resounding yes. And listen to me. That's really good news. Really, really good news. The fact that we are and we are being. Have been and are being. So I said that that in 1010 was perfect passive. A past event happened to us with continuing effects all through the future. Here, this tense in 1014 is present passive. What's that mean? It means it's happening to us now with ongoing effects all into the future. It has happened to us And it is happening to us. Now, don't miss that. Sanctification in the past was a passive thing. Sanctification in the present? What have you always been told? It's an active thing. So, God justified us and God will glorify us. But we're left to figure it out in the middle. We're left to struggle with it and hope we don't mess up too much in the middle. That ain't what this is. Glory, hallelujah, that's not what this says. We have been and we are being. And both are passive voice verbs. It's something God has done to, for, and in us. And that means that it is something that God is doing to, for, and in us. Our sanctification in the past was God's doing. And that means that our sanctification in the present and all into the future is perfectly God doing it. Faithful is He who calls you 
he will surely do it. And what's that referencing there in that? It's your sanctification. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept perfect at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be completely sanctified, it says. And then faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. He'll surely do what? He will surely sanctify you. He has surely and he will surely. He is surely. Now listen. I don't know if I can convey the freedom that this brings to me. And on the recording it just went boom because I just hit the mic. Maybe that's a way of conveying it. Boom, there you go. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Absolutely. But man, work out your salvation in fear and trembling knowing that it's God who is at work in you. My, my fear and trembling is that, wow, this is God doing this. My fear and trembling is not, oh no, I may not be able to do this. That is great news. Let me tell you what, I've really been nervous about my sanctification my entire adult life. And God said this week through His Word, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And faithful is He who calls you, and He will surely do it. It is done. It is finished. No more dead owe. And I think we take that and we say, yeah, my sins have been paid for, but I got to. How about this? Yeah, my sins have been paid for and I get to. I get to cooperate with God as He sanctifies me. I don't got to. I get to. Giddy up. Get her up. He will surely do it. This is sweet relief to me. I've always been comfortable with the fact that my justification was God's work and as such so will be my glorification. But I've always thought my sanctification was at least somewhat dependent on me getting my stuff together and agreeing with God and figuring things and trying harder to do to accomplish my sanctification. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, which is in agreement with all the rest of the Scriptures, is that God has sanctified me, God is sanctifying me, and yes, God will finally and fully sanctify me when all is said and done. Experientially. I get to work with Him. I get to. And I can make wrong choices. I can sin. I can frustrate myself in the process. But I cannot according to the words of Job, thwart any purpose of God, including my past, present, or future sanctification. Again, He will surely do it. It's like the Holy Spirit screams at us and says, He's going to do it. He's going to surely do it. He will surely do it. God finishes what He starts. And as we've said so many times in so many different contexts, God's plan reaches from eternity past and into eternity future. It is set and done in eternity and it is being done in time that we get to see it. 
And I hope that serves as a means of rejoicing when you're struggling, when you're wondering if we are somehow a burr in God's saddle that complicates His plans beyond hope of them being accomplished. May it never be. Christian, oh my. Your election, your calling, your regeneration, your conversion, your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, your perseverance, and your glorification are all the work of God. All of it. You don't have to wonder if you will be sanctified. You have been. And you are being, and you will be. And again, I think we've celebrated our salvation, our justification once and for all by the work of God in the book of Hebrews a lot already. But this just adds another glorious layer to the work of Christ as our high priest for us to wonder at and for us to celebrate. And wonder and celebrate we should. And we see that confirmed and affirmed in the last section of what we'll look at today, verses 15 to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. That's just a quote from Jeremiah with a little bit of comment thrown in there. So the passage wraps up today with the author pointing out that God Himself verifies that we have been perfected by going to the promise of the new covenant that we've looked at a couple of times in our journey through Hebrews so far. He points out that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our perfection when He promised in the forthcoming new covenant at the time of Jeremiah that the laws of God would be on our hearts, in the hearts of His people, on the minds of His people. And that He, God, would remember the sins and lawless deeds of His people no more. God's doing makes it so that His people have no sins to be brought up against them after the inauguration of this new covenant. Upon the establishment of this new covenant, God will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more! Well, God's, I'm not being sanctified because I keep sinning. And God says, what sin? You think you've done something outside of my purvey? You think I've done something that's not covered by the blood of Christ? And that's going to frustrate my plan to sanctify you? I don't remember your sins. I don't bring them up anymore. I don't give you a reminder of your sins. He'll convict you, but that's to draw him, draw you to Him, not to push you away from Him, not to make you hopeless, but to give you hope in the midst of your sin. And the Holy Spirit bore witness to this when He foretold it some 600 years before Jesus was in flesh and fulfilled His ministry here on the earth in Jeremiah 31 where He promised this new covenant. And this promise here in Hebrews is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah wrote it down, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. God was announcing His plan before He did it. This is what I'm going to do. This is inspiration. So he finishes this passage today by saying, where there is forgiveness of these, 
their lawless deeds and their sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because it's been made once for all. No more offering to be made. No more payment to be made. And I think that's part of the problem. I think it's the problem with our concept of sanctification. We've got to pay God back for the wrong we did. We've got to earn it. We've got to figure it out. And so since we've gone in debt to God again, we've got to try harder to do better to get back to where we should be. And that's how we see sanctification. And what the writer is saying today is, no, 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 no. There's no longer any offering for sin because he doesn't testify. He doesn't testify. God doesn't testify <laughs> that he wasn't going to remember your sins anymore. What fuel for our sanctification to know that God doesn't remember our sins anymore? He doesn't remind us of them. He doesn't bring them up. He doesn't put them in an account that we've got to pay back somehow. It's done. It's finished. No more debt I owe. And I believe wholeheartedly, and we'll get to this in application in just a second, our progress forward would be so much greater if we could rest on what has already been done. Rest in what has already been promised us. Faithful is He who calls you. He will surely do it. And you don't got to, you get to cooperate with it. You have been sanctified. You are being sanctified by God's So we turn to application. Three S's. Oh, y'all. God forgive me for my pride. (laughs) Substance. Okay. Sacrifice. All right. Sanctification. (laughs) Sanctification. Spell out sanctified and put ification at the end of it. Cheshire cat grin. Substance, sacrifice, sanctification. That is awesome. Thank you very much. Praise God for sanctification. That was this morning, by the way. Last night it wasn't there, y'all. <laughs> I done tickled myself. Okay, substance. First application point. All through this passage today, we've seen contrasts. Shadows versus substance. And in the new covenant, we've got the substance. We've got the real thing, baby, and ain't nothing like it. Right? All the Old Testament was a pointer to Jesus. Those shadows were the effects of the Son of God upstream calling attention to Himself through the sacrificial system. Don't look at the blood. Look at what it's pointing toward, which is the blood of Christ. So, what He did, what Jesus did, is the substance of what God was always planning to do. And He was getting people ready for it. He was preparing people for it. And Paul would say later that it was all written for our instruction. The writer of Hebrews is going to say later that the, the people back there didn't get everything because it wouldn't be final and full till we get what we get. 
And again, shadows can't save or perfect or help anyone, but the substance can. And the substance is Christ. John 5, 39-40. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them, the Old Testament, you have eternal life. And it is they, those Old Testament Scriptures, that bear witness about Me. And then He condemns them when He says, Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. So what's the, what, how do you flip that? Come to Jesus so that you can have life. Not just new life and salvation. That's what He's talking about. But come to Jesus now, Christian, so that you might have life. And have it what? To the full, in abundance. Pressed down, shaking together, running over. More life than you can handle. So you produce fruit and other people get to enjoy the life of Christ in and through you. That's the substance. I love this. The road to Emmaus. This strange guy walks up to these two people. It's Jesus. They don't know it. And they're like, hey, did you hear about everything that's happened? He's like, no, tell me about it. And they're like, well, you know, man, we thought this guy was going to be the guy. And they killed him. And Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones. They're like, what the heck? Who's this guy? (laughs) And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. You talk about an Old Testament survey. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a way to read the Old Testament. Jesus, will you interpret these things for me? Show me how they concern you. The substance belongs to Christ. Substance. Now, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Substance. Yeah, I got ahead of myself. Oh, I've got another verse. Sorry. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Substance, now sacrifice. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't pointless. They were pointing. They were pointing to the one sacrifice that could and would be sufficient and effective for the redemption of God's people. I'll ask you again, what do you want in a sacrifice? Reminder of your sins or removal of your sins? Because in Christ, we have the removal of our sins. And you have to remember that. The application is, remember that. Call that to mind. My little children, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sacrifice of Christ is the propitiation for our sins. John says it again later in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice, once for all, for our sins. I've said it two or three applications 
I'll say it again, Christian, because of the sacrifice of Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. And I'll never not say it. And I know you are on the pins and the needles. Substance, sacrifice, now sanctification. Supercalifragilistic sanctification. Are you sanctified or are you being sanctified? And the answer is yes. That's sanctification. You have been and you are. We get to work out what God has worked in. And the good news of having been sanctified, that's pretty easy, right? I've been set apart as holy, been dedicated to God. And the good news about being sanctified is that God is in the process of doing it. So when you despair about your position, when you despair about this struggle that you have with ongoing sin, you can look in the mirror, you can look at the devil, and you can look at God and say, you're doing this, God. Sometimes in spite of me, in the face of the accusations of the enemy, which outside of the blood of Christ would be accurate, you are sanctifying me. You are causing me to look more like Jesus. You are conforming me to the image of your Son. And one is not in conflict with the other. I have been sanctified, and yes, I am being sanctified. By who's doing? It's by God's doing. Your past sanctification, your future sanctification, and praise God, yes, your present sanctification is the work of God. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those things are not in disagreement with one another. Listen to me. The best way forward in sanctification is to rest harder in the truth of your past sanctification. I don't know that y'all heard that. I'm not asking for a name in here. What I am asking for is please understand this. The best way forward in our present sanctification is to rest harder in the truth of our past sanctification. Cease striving and know that He is God. He will be glorified in your life. He's doing it. Rest in what has been done Rest in what will be done knowing that what is being done is the doing of God Himself. Now Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so that all might see the strength to follow Your commands could never come from me. That's present sanctification. And He's doing it. Cooperate what he said <laughs> cooperate <laughs> if I can make up words he can make up words right 
<laughs> sanctification. You are sanctified and you are being sanctified and it is God's doing. Mm. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I'm not reading in love because it goes in the next verse and we're not going there. Second Timothy 1, 8-10 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me as prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what He has done. And listen, that is what He is doing. In your life, in our lives collectively, He who called you is faithful He is surely doing it. And He will surely do it. You are sanctified. You are being sanctified. And yes, praise God, you will be sanctified. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You that I get to Be a part of the process that is bringing about what you have already done. Father, thank you for sanctifying me in the past. Thank you for the sanctifying work that you're doing even now in my life. I praise you that I have been sanctified and I praise you that you are sanctifying me. I thank you for the once for all sacrifice that perfected me, that set me apart. The blood of Jesus that took away my sins. And I thank you for the cross of Christ that continually reminds me of your working to do away with the body of sin, even in my life. Father, again, we pray that if there is anyone here who has not been obedient to the command to trust Jesus, that you would show them the sufficiency of his work and the insufficiency of their old covenant type work to try to make themselves perfect. Show them that there is forgiveness of sins promised and delivered in the work of Jesus. And may they put their trust in him for that salvation. You do that work, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive, guess what, a benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good luck doing that. Oh, no. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.